0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to take them, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, recorded in the greatest book that was ever written, addressing some of the greatest subjects and ethical issues that you and I will ever face in life. Sermon on the Mount teaching us how to live our lives according to Jesus. Today we're looking at verses 27 through 30 and looking at the subject of lust and adultery. What Jesus had to say about lust and adultery. Matthew chapter five beginning with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know, your imagination is a powerful gift that God has given to all of us. And your memory as well. I remember several years ago seeing a movie that has remained in the memory bank of my mind ever since. It's not a great movie. It's a movie entitled The Secret Life of Walter Mitty and it starred Danny Kaye as the main character of the movie. Walter Mitty was an inconsequential guy, henpecked and harassed by everyone in his life, including his bossy mother, his overbearing, ideal-stealing boss, his childishly dim-witted fiancé and her equally loud-mouthed mother. In order to get away from the incessant needling that he was receiving, he began to imagine all sorts of exciting and impressive lives for himself. He worked for a printing company and his main job was to proofread uh, copies of manuscripts that came his way and have his stamp of approval upon them before they were published. And as he would read these manuscripts, Uh, He began daydreaming, imagining that he was the main characters in the books that he was reading and the manuscripts that he was reading. During this daydreaming time and imagination that was coming out of his mind, he dreamed, for example, that he was an airplane pilot and that he rescued the people in a very dangerous situation. When the plane was about to crash, he was able to uh, land the plane safely and save everybody's life or he was a famous surgeon that used his skills as a surgeon to save somebody's life, or a famous detective, or the captain of a ship that was in the middle of a storm while at sea and was able to save everybody's life. He just lived the lives of the people that he read about. There are times when my mind wanders and daydreams as well, and I'm sure that I'm not alone when it comes to this, that all of us do that that I imagine myself being somewhere else or being somebody else doing something else than what I normally do in order to get my mind off of the mundane things that I have to deal with. Imagination is a wonderful gift from God. It is through imagination that artists develop wonderful new paintings. Architects design interesting buildings. Composers create beautiful music compositions. Poets and authors write prize-winning novels and poems. Even Disney World is an entertainment empire built entirely upon imagination. Yet all as good as imagination can be, sometimes imagination can be dark and dangerous. A wicked imagination can pervert the soul. Just imagine what kind of dark images writers like Edgar Allan Poe or Stephen King have done in writing their horror stories or a man like Karl Marx who wrote the Communist Manifesto. The gift of imagination can be a good thing as well as a sinful thing when it comes to sexual thoughts. Back in 1976, Jimmy Carter was campaigning for the presidency of the United States he was interviewed by all things a reporter representing the Playboy magazine. He said to this reporter that he had looked on a lot of women with lust and that he had committed adultery in his heart. Many people were shocked that a man running for the presidency of the United States would openly confess to lust and sensual fantasies. But most simply thought that it was simply silly for an individual. the uh, Silliest thing that they had ever heard of in their lives, that they would think about looking upon another person, especially a man looking upon a woman, in sexual fantasy and imagination that they were having a sexual relationship with them as being something that would be terrible and sinful. It is a fact that our society encourages promiscuity more than it did 70 years ago. We get bombarded with sexual messages from movies and television shows and books and music and yes, even entertainments and advertisements. But sexual sin is not a 21st century development. It has been around a long time and people in every generation have struggled with it. Living a pure life is difficult, difficult today, but it's always been difficult. Throughout history, there have been cultures in which it was considered acceptable for a married man to have a mistress, or for a man to visit a prostitute, or for it to be assumed that two people living together were married. Well, Jesus had a lot to say about lust and adultery, and so I want us to examine what Jesus had to say about lust and adultery around three basic ideas and these ideas are expressed for you and printed for you on your bulletin outline today. The three main thoughts that we want to examine has to do first of all with the commandment regarding adultery and then for a few moments to look at the warning that Jesus gave regarding lust and then of course finally the protection regarding sexual purity. So let's begin looking at this first idea of the commandment regarding adultery. Notice what Jesus says in verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And having worked our way thus far through the Sermon on the Mount, we understand that what Jesus is referring to by saying you have heard is that which is recorded in what we call the Old Testament. In other words, he's referring us back to the Ten Commandments. You have heard in the Old Testament days the Ten Commandments that it was written and said, You shall not commit adultery. I believe that Jesus is reminding his readers and us especially that he did not come into the world as he expressed it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 to destroy the law. Jesus didn't come to say, Well, you you don't have to be worried about the... The laws of the Old Testament days You don't have to worry about keeping the Ten Commandments They're obsolete, they're no longer relevant for today Jesus did not come to do that He said I didn't come to destroy the laws or the prophets Or to do away with them I came to fulfill them And so the laws regarding adultery and fidelity Are still just as important and necessary and relevant today As they were when they were first given to Moses by the Lord On the top of the mountain where he received them The minister stands before the couple and he says, to the man and to the woman, do you take this woman or this man whom you hold by the right hand to be your lawfully wedded wife or husband? And will you live together after God's holy ordinance? And will you love each other, him or her? Comfort him or her? Honor him or her? Keep him or her? In sickness or in health? And forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto him or to her so long as you both shall live. And supposedly, the man and the woman whom the minister is performing the ceremony for will respond by saying, Yes, or Yes, I will. And then the minister says, Do you have a ring to give? as a symbol of the vow and the promise and the covenant that you've now entered into. And so they exchange rings and as they give rings to one another, he says to them that these rings are a permanent reminder of the vows which you have made. So every time we hear those words, we are reminded that matrimony is earth's most sacred relationship. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery reminds us of the highest relationship known to man that relationship that intimate relationship that exists between one man and one woman in a permanent relationship until death alone would part them the 10 commandments that is, at least many of them are stated negatively you shall not kill you shall not steal you shall not commit adultery If we were to rewrite them in a positive way, it would say you shall allow an individual the right to live. You shall allow an individual the right to own possession. And you are to have marital fidelity for one another. The seventh commandment deals with all forms of immorality. What it says in a nutshell is that all sexual involvement outside of marriage, whether premarital or extramarital sex, is a grievous sin against Almighty God. Back in the 60s, we were told that the Ten Commandments, and especially this one, was out of date, old-fashioned. A so-called new morality, which was really the old immorality that was being brought in, was announced, and millions of young people followed it and were sucked into the swirling sewers of sin. The Bible has a lot to say about sexual immorality and the need to be faithful to one another in your relationships. In addition to what Jesus said to remember, thou shalt not commit adultery. 1 Corinthians 10 verse eight says, let us not act immorally. Don't act immorally. It's talking about a sexual immorality here. In the book of Colossians chapter three, verse five says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The word consider here is translated in other places. If you have the King James, it says mortify. Mortify the members of your earthly body. One translation renders it, treat your body and these desires as though they were dead. In fact, the Amplified Bible says, kill the desire to be immoral. 1 Thessalonians 4:3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The word sanctification means to be set apart. What is God's will for your life? Sometimes I'm asked, what is, how do you know God's will for your life? Well, there are many things that the Bible is very clear about what God's will for your life and the word sanctification, that God's will for your life is to be sanctified. Well, what in the world does that mean, preacher? The word sanctified means you are set apart. That when you got saved, as the choir and Andre saying, you are redeemed. To be sanctified means that in your redemption, when God saved you, he set you apart from the rest of the world. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. You're not going downstream. You're going upstream against society and everything that the world would have you to say, hey, that's all silly and in the past and no longer relevant. The Bible says it's still relevant. God says it's still an immoral sin for you to live in an adulterous relationship. You shall not commit adultery. The Bible clearly states that. So consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse three. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 6. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, I want to read verses 26 through 29, and then skip down to verses 32 through 35. Proverbs 6, 26 through 29, and 32 through 35. Now, I'm going to be reading it out of the New Living Translation. And I'm reading it out of the New Living Translation for, because it's, it's, of its clarity. It's so easily understood. There's no mistaking about what is being said here. Proverbs 6, verse 26. For a prostitute will bring you to poverty. But sleeping with another man's wife will cost you your life. Can't, verse 27. Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes Caught on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. Skip down to verse 32. But the man who commits adultery is an utter fool, for he destroys himself. He will be wounded and disgraced. His shame will never be erased. For the woman's jealous husband will be furious and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation nor be satisfied with a payoff of any size. Now go back to verse 34, Proverbs 6. Verse 34 says, for the man's jealous, a woman's jealous husband will be furious. He will show no mercy when he takes revenge. Well, what will he do when he takes revenge? Well, be thankful that you don't live in the Old Testament times. Deuteronomy 22:22 22, 22 says, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will be purging Israel of such evil. So for a man to commit adultery with another man's wife, the punishment would be capital punishment. You would be put to death. Now you say it verse, it says in Deuteronomy 22, both the man and the woman. Well, as I understand the context, For an adulterous relationship to take place, both parties must be willing to to be involved. If if both persons are not involved, then it wouldn't be adultery, it would be rape. Okay? So if it were a case of rape, then the man would be punished, the woman would not have to die. But if it's adultery, it it is understood, assumed that both parties were willing to do so. Therefore, both parties were guilty. And when I read this, I thought about over in the New Testament, the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. You remember when when the, the scribes and the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus to find some fault with him, they brought a woman to him who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they said to Jesus, it is written in the law that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And you know, I've often wondered, where was the man In this situation. Because adultery involves both people. That's what the scripture says. But where is the man? I I tend to believe, and the only conclusion that I could come up to, that this was a setup. I I think, And and, and I admit, I'm reading into this. I have no scriptural basis upon which to, to, to say this. But I think that they were trying to trick Jesus to find some kind of fault with him. To get him to say something that they could say, aha, see... See what he said? See what he did? So I think it was a setup that maybe that these individuals, to catch the woman in the act of adultery meant that they had to go wherever they were, that they were in the actual act of sexual intercourse, which means that they made them stop. They took the woman, but they left the man. Why? Just so that they could trick Jesus into saying something or doing something that he would not have done. The law said both of them were to die. So uh, it, it, he says both die, both die. Let's go on. Hebrews 13:4. Marriage is to be honored by all and husbands and wives must be faithful to each other. God will judge those who are immoral and those who have committed adultery. Do you remember Joseph in the Old Testament? When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he refused to submit to her uh, advances. And his reasoning was this. He said to her, uh, there is no one greater in this house than I am, uh, other than your husband. He has, that is your husband, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And Joseph refused to submit to her advances. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to God's word. Proverbs 5.15. Be faithful to your own wife and give your love to her alone. Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Proverbs, uh, uh, well, those are just verses of scripture without repeating. Uh, We could go on and on and on, pulling out verse of scripture after verse of scripture. What is there about God's word that we do not understand? It is a sin to commit adultery. Thou shalt not Commit adultery. You shall be faithful to one another. It is a vow, a promise, a commitment that you make to one another before Almighty God. Malachi says that God is a witness to every marriage vow that is taken by a man and a woman. Well, we could go on, but let's go on to the second idea. I think you understand now what the scripture says about adultery. But let's look at the next thing that he says in verse 26. The warning regarding lust. Look at it in verse 28. He said, you've heard what it has been said. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her. Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now the word lust. The word lust is what I call or we call an amoral word. That is, it's neither good nor evil. What determines whether it's good or evil is the content in which it is used. It's uh, it's like money. Money is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. The Bible does not say uh, that money is the root of all evil. That's one of the most misquoted verses of scripture in all the Bible. Money is not the root of all evil. The Bible says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's when a person just becomes obsessed and loves money, uh, like Ebenezer Scrooge, for example, in in, in Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. He's just obsessed with money, accumulating all that he can get. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and poison all the rest is the philosophy that many people have toward money. There are times in the Bible, places in the Bible, where the lust is used in a good way. It's not always translated lust. Sometimes it's translated as desire. For example, Jesus said to the apostles, I have been desiring to have the Passover feast with you. Was Jesus lusting? (laughs) No. No. But in the Greek language, it's the same word that's translated lust. He could have said, it could have been translated, Jesus could have said, I've been lusting uh, to, to, to have the, the Passover feast with you. But what he meant was, I, I just, I long to be with you. I desire to be with you. On the other hand, the word lust is used in a sinful way. For example, in Romans six twelve, it says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. So there, Paul is using the term to mean to take a normal God-given desire and use it in a way other than the way God intended it to be used. That's what lust, in a wrong way, is what makes lust sin. There's nothing wrong with sex, okay? We need to understand that. It's not a dirty word. The world has made it that. We get embarrassed talking about sex. We don't want to do that. Did you know that there is a book in the Bible that we sometimes refer to as God's sex manual? Yeah, it's called the Song of Solomon. Boy, you read this, and watch all the teenagers now, they'll go get a modern translation. But the Song of Solomon, contrary to what Charles Spurgeon said, that it is an allegory between Christ and the church. No, it's not. The book of the Song of Solomon It's God's sex manual to give you instructions on how the proper use of sex ought to be done. It's it's an X-rated book in the Bible. And it's in the Bible, folks. And it's there. So God is not a sex killjoy. God gave sex as a blessing to be used. And as long as it is controlled and used in the way that God intends it to be, it's wholesome, it's holy, it's good to be enjoyed between a married man and a married woman, not a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And so sex is great, it's good, but just like anything else that's good, it can get out of control. Water is good. we got to have water in order to live. We thank God for the rain, but a flood will kill you. A flood is when water gets out of control and overflows the banks of the streams and the rivers and floods and destroys everything. Water is great as long as it's controlled. Fire is wonderful. Boy, in the winter time, we want a fire to keep us warm. We want a fire to cook our food. But you ask the people out in California of all the grass fires that consuming hundreds and thousands of acres of land, fire out of control is a, de- a dangerous thing. Sex is a wonderful thing, but sex out of control is a dangerous thing and it can destroy your life. James says in chapter 1 and verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So it's, it's, it's what's in the heart that, that condemns a person. That's what Jesus said also in Matthew 5, 28. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew five twenty-eight. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. The word I is emphatic. In other words, um, he's talking to people who said all of the rabbis and the scribes say this. Jesus said, I say this. You come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount And the people went away in amazement because he spoke not as the prophets or the rabbis but as the son of God. He spoke with authority. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And then he said, looks, looks. Whoever looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her. The word look here doesn't mean a casual glance. You know, sometimes we can't help but be exposed to something Without anticipation, as someone has said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. So, you know, God didn't, I didn't go blind when God saved me, you know. I can still look upon a person and and appreciate their beauty. But if I look upon another woman other than my wife, and as I look upon her, say, man, and, and let it be lingering, Let let me purposely look at that other woman with the intent in my heart. Boy, if, if I could, I would have sex with that woman. Then I've committed lust. I've committed lust. But for me to lust after my wife, to have a desire for her and for her for me, is normal and good and holy and godly. That's the way God intended it to be. But for me to look at a woman or to turn on the television set and purposely go to a program or to pick up a magazine uh, or whatever and and with, with the purpose and the intent that I'm going to look at this person and I'm going to long for this person, I'm going to lust after this person, I desire to have sex with this person, that is lust. It is lust. And it begins, well, Jesus said that it comes from the heart. Over in the other gospel of, of Matthew, he says that it's, it's out of the heart that comes evil things. So when I look at a woman and glance at her and appreciate her beauty, okay, but, but don't linger and don't do it with the intent of wanting to have sex with that woman. And, and while I'm at it, ladies, women are just as guilty of lusting for men as men are for women, Uh, it's true. I mean, how how else can there be adultery if both parties are not involved? So I know the Lord was addressing men and we hammer the men on this all the time, but ladies, some of us, some of you, you're just as guilty as the men are, so don't just browbeat the men all the time. You women can lust after men too. Uh, That's what a prostitute is. A prostitute is a woman who longs for to have sexual relationships with other men. That's what it is. So the Bible is full of examples. Let me quickly, my time's running out here, but I need to go ahead with some other things. Let me give you some examples. Eve lusted. She didn't lust after Adam. I mean, Who else was there? There wasn't anybody else. But you remember in the third chapter of Genesis when she went out there to that tree and she saw the fruit that it was good to make her wise. The word saw there means that she stared at it. She longed for it. She wanted it and she took it. it says she lusted after the fruit of that tree. I'm I, thinking this morning I was preaching the sermon to myself pacing up and down my office and so forth, the thought struck to me in Genesis 3 6, it says, And she gave also to her husband who was with her. And I don't know why, I just, it just never dawned on me before those words that she was with him. She didn't take that fruit from the tree and go hunt him down in order to give it to him, she didn't go running after him and say, Hey, come with me. And let me show you what this fruit can do for you. He was standing there with her. Why didn't he say something to her? Why didn't he remind her? Don't you remember God said, don't touch that tree, don't eat from that tree. But he wasn't there. I mean, he was there, but he didn't speak up. Well, I won't charge anything for that. It just just hit me (laughs) Why? And then there was David, King David. He slew the giant Goliath but the giant of lust slew David walking on the top of his house the flat roof that was there in the cool of the evening looking down at Bathsheba what in the world was she doing on the top of a building at night naked out in public I mean that's that's what he saw that's why he lusted after her. He looked down there. There's a naked woman on the top of that house, and he sent word. Who is she? Oh, uh, Uriah's wife. He sent for her, and being the king, I guess she felt like that she couldn't resist him, and so they committed adultery, and she got pregnant, and ended up murdering his husband so that he could cover up the sin. And then you got old King Herod. Herod and Temple. Over in the 14th chapter of the gospel of Matthew, he stole another man's wife. And she had a daughter, a beautiful daughter, and she danced provocatively in front of him. And the Bible says she pleased him. Was she strip teasing? She was doing some type of a sinful dance. And he, he lusted after her. And he, he, he said to his wife, whom he had stolen from his brother, and married her, an adulterous relationship. And she said, I, he said, I'll give anything in the world to you, half of my kingdom, if you'll let me have your daughter. And she said, I want John, the head of John the Baptist. And so Baptist preacher lost his head at a dance. She pleased Herod. And John died because of. It. Well, I need to finish this, so let's go to the third idea. The protection regarding sexual purity. Because he says in verse 29 and 30, some very difficult things to understand. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better to lose one eye than to go into hell with both. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. It's better to go without it than to go into hell with both hands. What's he saying here? Three or four things on your outline. First of all, take radical steps now to guard your heart. Now, I don't think that what he says in verse 29 and 30 should be taken literally. I think this is a metaphor, and I'll tell you why. If I were to cut off my hand, say that I did something with my hand, maybe I had a sexual relationship with a woman, cut off my hand, Is that gonna stop me from being an adulterer? No. You can cut off both my hands. You can cut off both my feet. But it's my mind and my heart that's the problem, not my hands. It's not my hands, it's not my feet. It's my heart. That's where the sin comes from. Matthew 15, 19, this was the verse that I was looking at for a while ago, it says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication. Adultery is is a sexual relationship between a married man and somebody else other than his wife. Fornication is a sexual relationship with anybody without the benefit of marriage. One of the major problems that's confronting our society today is cohabitation, where couples live together without the benefit of marriage. And they and they enjoy the sexual relationship with ever either going to a justice of the peace or to a judge or to a minister and be legally and morally married. And you say, Well it's just a piece of paper. Well, I tell you what you do, you go down to one of the banks here in our city and you, you say I wanna I wanna take out a loan and I, I, I wanna I wanna buy a house, I need $300,000, whatever house cost. And uh, they say, okay, well, you've got good credit. We'll, we'll, we'll loan you the money. He pulls out a piece of paper and he says, sign right here. Oh, no. No, that's just a piece of paper. That's all that is. I don't, I don't have to, I want the money, but you, I'm not going to sign that piece of paper. I'm not going to sign that contract. Well, you're not going to get the money. There's not a, there's not a bank in, in this town, in this world, that'll loan you any amount of money without you signing a contract saying, I'll pay it back. So what do you want to do? You'll enjoy the pleasures of sex without commitment. Guard your heart now. Now, not later. That's what it says. Take radical steps now to guard your heart. When tempted to pick up a lustful magazine, Respond to it like like an amputee, like the word like is a metaphor, not literally, but like it. Just, just no, I got a nub on my hand. No, we do that. Got a patch over my eye. Number two, take responsibility for your actions. Some have said this is there there isn't much that I can do about it. Oh yes, there is. You don't have to look at that movie. You don't have to look at that magazine. You don't have to keep on looking at that woman to lust after her or that man to lust after him. You can choose to stop. We can stop looking at those movies and those magazines. You can protect your eyes. You know what Job said, chapter 31 in verse one? I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. And the Bible says that we will all stand before Christ to be judged and we will each receive whatever we desire for the good or the evil that we have done in our bodies. You will be held accountable for what you do. Christian or not. But as a Christian, yes, you're not going to escape the judgment of God. You, you'll not, if you are a Christian and you live immorally, uh, you will be held, you're not, you'll not go to hell, but you'll be judged. God will hold you accountable for what you do and why you do it. And with whom you do it Number three, start reading God's word more Not just now, but read it more John 17 I have given them your word And the world hates them Because they do not belong to the world Just as I do not belong to the world I'm not asking you to take them out of the world But to keep them safe from the evil one That's the devil They do not belong to this world any more than I do Make them holy by your truth Teach them your word which is truth Again, in the temptation that Jesus was dealing with uh, when he was out in the wilderness and the devil kept saying, turn this stone into bread and jump off this pinnacle and bow down and worship me. Jesus responded by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And I know I sound like a broken record, but I tell you time and time again, read God's word, study God's word, memorize God's word, hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God. Number four, Start renewing your love for God. Do you love God? Do you love God more than anything else in all the world? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 2 Thessalonians 3:5, May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and the expression of the love of God and the patience endurance that comes from Christ. So let your love for the Lord Jesus... Grow deeper. If you'll love God and Jesus the way you ought to, then you'll be strong when it comes to those temptations. You don't want to do anything to disgrace your family. You don't want to do anything to disgrace yourself. You don't want to do anything to disgrace God. Quickly now, I know my time is up, but let me give you a couple of more verses and we'll be through. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Listen to this New Living Translation. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin and who worship idols or commit adultery or, or, or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or, or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or, or abusive or treat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But thanks be to God for verse 11. Listen to what verse 11 says. Some of you were once like that. (laughs) There's hope, folks. He says to these people, and Corinth was one of the most wicked, sinful, sexually immoral societies of Paul's day. And some of the people who were in that church, he says, some of you were like this. You were immoral. You were homosexuals. You were sexual perverts. Some of you were like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. (laughs) Praise God for salvation. Praise God for redemption. There were some like you. You were that way. But God saved you and God changed you. And there's hope for you today. Go back to a moment in your mind, and I promise you I'm through with this one. Not ministerially speaking, okay. The eighth chapter of John's gospel, when this woman who was caught in the act of adultery was brought to Jesus, and uh, he knelt down and he wrote something in the sand. We don't know what it was. I hope someday we'll find out what it was. We don't know what it was. But Jesus just stooped down and he wrote something in the sand. And when he looked up, everybody was gone. All of the accusers were gone. Nobody standing there but the woman. And Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? She said, Lord, they are none. And he said, then I condemn you not either. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And if there's anything that I could leave you with, it would be the words of Jesus. If you're here today without Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you need to be saved. You need to be willing to admit to Jesus that you are a sinner and that Jesus died for you and that you would repent from, of your sins, which means that you would turn from your sins and that you would turn to Jesus and you would ask for forgiveness and you would commit Jesus to, uh, to Jesus and invite him into your heart. Just as that man and that woman would stand before a minister and say, I take you as my wife. I turn my back on all other women. I'm not going to be with anybody else from you from now on until the day I die or the day that you die. She does the same thing with him. That's what you do. You say to Jesus, I'm turning my back on the world And I commit myself to you and I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Now, if you are here today and you are a Christian, but you've been living a sinful life, you've been going down the broad and, 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 and wide way, Uh, and and you know that that you are a Christian, you know in your heart beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved, but you've been, been having evil thoughts, you've been maybe even committing adultery in your heart, there's hope for you. You don't have to be saved all over again, but it's just like what I've told you before. If I were to fall down and break my arm, I will be in misery until I get that arm set. Once the arm is set, it can heal and it can be useful again. When you sin as a Christian, it does not destroy your relationship with God, but it does mess up your fellowship with Him. Just like I told you before, you told those story about the man who got angry with his wife, got in an arm, he hauled off and slapped her. Slapped her. Didn't see her for three days. On the fourth day, he could see her just a little bit out of this eye. <laughs> it didn't destroy the relationship. They were still husband and wife. But boy, it sure messed up the fellowship. And the same thing is true about you and God. You're his child. You belong to him. But if you harbor sin in your heart, it'll mess up your relationship, your your fellowship with him. If you regard sin in your heart, he's not going to hear you when you pray. So what do you do? You get down before God and you say, God, I'm your child. I messed up. I sinned. Committed adultery. I've lied. I've stolen whatever it is you've done. And you say, God, please forgive me of that. He will. He's not going to throw you away. He loves you. He cares for you. He died for you. And he wants to have a good relationship with you and a good fellowship with you. And you can have it if you just do what's right. Let's bow together. And so, Father, as we come now to this time of invitation, I pray that you'll not take my words, but your words, what I've tried to share with your people, the best way that I know how. I pray, Holy Spirit, there'll be no confusion on anybody's part or mine as to what needs to be done this moment now as we come to this time of invitation. Holy Spirit of God, we can't do it without your convicting power and presence in our lives. So I wish that I could look into everybody's heart and life here today and make the decisions for them, but I can't, Lord. It's their decision. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll bring conviction, that you'll lead them to do what you want them to do today. May they have an open heart and a surrendered will to yours. And we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please. And if God is leading you to come, please, please.